0: Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Today today we are bringing you some extra material. It is a four-week-long class that Pastor Ben is teaching on the book of Revelation. In this class, Ben will go over the cultural and historical context of Revelation in order to understand its meaning for those the book was written to. From there, He will draw out what sort of meaning we can make of this book for ourselves today. And if you're listening to this in real time, this series is happening Wednesday nights leading up to Easter. So if you want to join in live for the rest of the sessions, check out the Zoom registration link in the show notes. And with that, enjoy.
1: one, two. Am I echoing two? I am. That is going to be, that echo effect is going to drive me crazy. I wanted to, I asked Alex to start with that song because it gives us a vision of what the book of Revelation is trying to talk about. You know that verse where it says cherubim and seraphim all proclaiming holy, holy, holy around the glassy sea, all the saints adore him. How many of you, so you have a sense of awe when you sang that hymn, right? I do when I sing that hymn, the sense of peace, calm, reverence. Do you get that feeling when you read the book of Revelation? <laughs> that, that's that's the, what I, how I would answer too. But honestly, I really think the book was included in our Bibles to invoke that sense of awe, that sense of reverence, that sense of wonder of what the holy God is culminating all of history too. Uh, I want to make a special welcome to those of you joining online. We have about 20 people joining us uh, via Zoom. One of them even messaged me from Australia. They're staying up late to join this class or getting up early, one of the two. So with any book of the Bible, before we even crack it open, especially the book of Revelation, we come to it with our own lenses, right? I, as a white, straight, American, male, especially from Idaho. I'm going to read this different than someone from Africa, right? And I say that because I was asked to teach this exact same course in eight weeks in the Congo of Africa. And I asked them the same question I'm about, you, I'm about to ask you. So I'll tell you what they how they answered this question after I ask you but we all approach every book of the Bible with our own lenses, our own context, our own histories, our own personhood. We can't separate ourselves from those things. So I'm going to bring those things into my reading of the Bible. And I also carry with it my theological tradition, my understandings of what I've been told about this book of the Bible. And I realized at one point in my journey that all the things I thought about the book of Revelation were things that I were told by other people or other books I read, rather than actually sitting down and reading it myself, right? Even before I got to seminary and was told to read this book for for, for class. So, so the question I asked my class in, in the Congo of Africa was, what comes to mind first when you think of the book of Revelation? Um, and I'd love to open that up to you guys. What comes to mind first when you think of the book of Revelation. And, and, oh, you got the, Alex has the microphone. So um, if you have something that comes to mind, what, what comes to mind first when you think about it? And those of you on Zoom too, feel free to type what comes to mind first when you think of the book of Revelation.
2: Apocalypse.
1: Apocalypse. All right. And what comes to mind when you think of apocalypse? The end,
3: right? There's no rapture.
1: There's no rapture. That's the first thing that comes to mind for you. There's,
3: yeah, they, there's no rapture. It doesn't talk about
1: rapture in the-, in the book of Revelation. All right. Who else? What well, comes to mind first when you think the book of Revelation?
2: There's like weird creatures with different <laughs> heads and legs. <lights>
1: <laughs> that's very true. So there's weird creatures with different heads and a lot of heads and all the, it's like a, it's like a monster movie at some point in the, in the book of Revelation. Who else? What, what comes to mind? Metaphors.
2: Good. Well, tagging, tagging onto to what uh, the lady said over there, very visual imagery there. And yeah. then that's interesting because I'm looking at it from whatever my visual imagery is. Yeah. And then somebody else will see something different. Sure. But there's there's just almost uh, the, the colors, the activities, the like the, the creatures. Um, uh, I find that fascinating. Yeah. I can't make sense of it, but it's kind of fascinating.
1: <laughs> well, hopefully after these four weeks, we'll be able to make sense of some of those things. The, the numbers, the imagery, the colors, they all have really significant meanings in the book of Revelation. So we'll, we'll look at that. Maybe asking a different way, on a scale from fear to hope, where are you on that scale when you think of the book of Revelation? Does it bring about hope? Or does it bring about fear? Because apocalypse doesn't sound like a, a big, hopeful. Go ahead.
2: That's the reason I'm here tonight. Is because I've heard you say a couple of things about Revelation. The first time in a funeral. And I, I came out of the funeral and I, I was saying, what a wonderful thing we have to look forward to. Exactly. And so... Um, I'm thinking that you can give me a different interpretation of revelation than I've known growing up in my childhood and through my life. Sure. And which I never did hang on to a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, forget that. It's that can't be the way it is. You know, For God sure. loves us. In recent years, God loves us. So. How could this apocalyptic thing? So I'm here to hear more of that tonight.
1: More hope. More
2: hope. More hope. All right. More hope
1: for us. That's wonderful. I appreciate you sharing that.
2: Another thing you said once, just talking about you were interpreting something from Revelation, and you said it did not mean the fire of hell, but God's love. Yeah. And I want to hear more of that.
1: You got it. You came to the right place. (laughs) So it kind of reveals one more sorry katrina
2: so growing up in the lutheran church um re- we didn't talk about the Rev- book of revelation it was like there but it wasn't recently until i read about before i came here tonight martin luther did not want the book of revelation in the bible and so now i know why <laughs> we just kind of like Meh. it was just there right Yeah. So yeah.
1: now she brings up a really interesting point both john calvin and Martin Luther wanted to delete the book of Revelation from the canon. Because after the Protestant Reformation, it was kind of like no holds barred. We can take the Bible, we'll delete that Apocrypha in the middle the Catholics read, right? So we abandoned that. But then all the other books were up for grabs after the, the Protestant Reformation. So John Calvin, much later, but also Martin Luther at the very beginning, he wanted to delete the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews which makes me really mad at him. Um, I love the book of Hebrews and, and the book of James and a couple of other books too. But uh, John Calvin also wanted to delete those, those books from the Bible. But I understand when it comes to the book of Revelation because the whole purpose of the Bible, the reason why it was canonized, compiled, put together in the first place, do you know the one reason why? Discipleship. It's supposed to help people grow in their relationship with Christ through the church. So it's this canonized library. The the book, the word Bible means library, literally. So it's this collection of books to help people grow in discipleship. At the Council of Nicaea, they decided on four gospels, and I bet you can all name them: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know how many gospels they were choosing from? 150. Right? So they weren't canonizing based on all the available Gospels. They were canonizing based on these books would be the most helpful to grow people closer to Christ. And so these Gospels came to, they, they made the cut, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, And they did that kind of same lens with that. And so the book of Revelation falls in that same category. And so when we approach any book of the Bible, we're supposed to really approach it in that lens. Like, how does this help me in my discipleship with with Jesus? So let me tell you what my African class, and there there was like six different dialects in my class. So every phrase I said had to be interpreted six times. I had this huge lesson planned. I got through maybe the top portion, right? But they responded by their African context. What they picked up on, their first thoughts when it came to the book of Revelation was the animals, right? Because there's giraffes, there's, there's elephants, there's cheetahs, there's hyenas, there's zebras all over the place. And, and so they took a much more, I would describe earthy approach, they saw how, they noticed how there's no sea in the new Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation. There's literally no sea. Why? Because Israel was really fearful of water. So their vision of heaven includes no water. (laughs) Why? What wiped out all of earth? The flood. So you're going to be really scared of water after that, right? But so in the new Jerusalem, even people, my friends from California, they're like, no ocean? in heaven? And like, well, this, again, Israel brought their history, their perspective to seeing what heaven would look like, right? And so we do too. and, And my African students did as well. What's interesting though, in those answers is the most common phrases in all the book of Revelation is witness, throne, lamb, These are the most common words throughout all of the book of Revelation. But these aren't the common things that people will talk about, right? When I ask a person on the street, what comes to mind to the book of Revelation, they think the mark of the beast, right? It feels like that's the most famous part of the book of Revelation or the big monsters or uh, apocalypse and fear. Um, We don't talk about the witness of the church or the throne room or the, the slaughtered lamb. Which which is, which is uh, Jesus Christ. So it's interesting that you mention apocalypse because the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. and that's where we get the English word apocalypse. But do you know what the word apocalypse means in Greek? If we judged it by the English definition, it would mean world destruction, everything falling apart, right? Everybody's destroyed. That's what we think when we think of apocalypse. but literally, This Greek word apocalypsis, it literally means an unveiling. It means an uncovering, a revealing, a revelation. So that's why we call this book Revelation, because it is the unveiling and the revelation that John received. So now we have to ask this question, what is it revealing? That's what the, the, it's a revelation, but a, a revelation of what? Right? And that's really what we're going to get into is that it is a revelation that's given to someone named John. Um, but we're asking this question as readers today, what is it revealing? Um, and I think the reason why the word apocalypse in the English language has taken on a lot of these destructive tones is because of how the book continues on, right? It feels like it's just this marathon of destruction, especially the middle part. Like you're reading, you don't read it for your devotions, right? You don't wake up and like, oh, I can't wait to get in the middle of the book of Revelation where the bowls of wrath are being poured out on all the world, right? That's not something you're going to go to in the morning. I'm going to turn to the book of Psalms and be really happy there with my coffee, right? So the book of Revelation though, we're asking what is being revealed as, as we turn every page? What is being revealed through These words. Um, And and really, the what is being revealed is God in Jesus Christ. So again, this is a lens that I really want to give you. The revelation is of God through Jesus Christ. And one of the big things that you see all throughout the book of Revelation, we use the stark, strong imagery, right, that you mentioned. We use animals and all of these incredibly evocative pictures to describe the entire history of humanity with God. There's a, I think it's in Revelation, um, Revelation 12, where it describes, and it's, I bring this up, I, I really bug my family, you know, especially in, in Christmas and holidays and stuff like that, because I kind of push their buttons, you know. So pray for them, they have to put up with a lot through me. But I say, yeah, Christmas is in the book of Revelation. And any of you read Revelation 12 where there's this pregnant lady and she's running through the wilderness and there's this dragon chasing her and the dragon is sitting at the foot of of her feet and as she's giving birth, waiting to devour her firstborn son. But as soon as the son is born, he is elevated to the highest heaven and is given the reign over all of the cosmos, Right that's Christmas. <laughs> what it's describing is how God came to earth in flesh in born as a baby through Mary. And the destructive powers of Satan is shown as this metaphorical huge dragon that's trying to stop this from happening, right? But if we miss that and we approach it with how I was taught. So I, I read the kid's version of Left Behind growing up. Anyone else do that? That was my first introduction to the Book of Revelation, right? My, my my family and I read those books before bed. Not the greatest strategy. <laughs> Not good. It's like my nightmares were just filled with all those things. Um, and so when you approach it with with the lens that left behind gives you, you're gonna start thinking, well, there's a dragon that's gonna come and chase this woman in the future going to chase this woman and her born son is supposed to rule all over everything. And we're waiting for that. It's kind of like a psychic foretelling of what's going to happen. But the revelation that's given to John is to say, this is how God was revealed through that moment, that birth. And so this revelation is telling all of human history, right? It's not a psychic foretelling of the future. Um, and we'll, we'll get into more of that as, as the class goes on. But the fundamental thing to remember with the book of Revelation is what is being revealed. It is God through Jesus Christ. And how we might be a faithful witness and followers of God and Jesus Christ um, in the world. So when was the book of Revelation written? It's an important to understand the context in time if we want to understand the metaphors and things like that uh, that's happening. Uh, Emperor Domitian was the ruler of Rome at the time, and he was after Nero. Anybody know Nero? He's a pretty famous, horrible, horrible, horrible. He tried to appoint his horse as head of council. He's just a really crazy person. Assassinated by the council in Rome for how terrible he was. He would light Christians on fire to light his dinner parties. Um, he he started the worst persecution towards Christians um, in in the in that time ever, um, and so he was assassinated. Domitian took um, his reign, and in the midst of that, scholars are pretty sure that's when John was exiled to Patmos. Was in between. Um, the rule of Nero and Emperor Domitian. And and they think that this is most likely when the book of Revelation was written between 81 to 96, because Domitian is mentioned a couple of times in the Greek, but so is Nero. And what John did a lot was play off the metaphors of each other. They're they're both employed by the beast. (laughs) And I'll let you know on a secret for the book of Revelation, guess what the beast is? It's Rome. But guess what they also call Rome? Just to make it as confusing as possible. Guess what they also call Rome in the book of Revelation? Babylon. And what was Babylon? The worst exile event in Israel's history, right? So Rome is Babylon and Babylon is Rome. And any empire in the world that acts like Babylon or Rome is the beast, and to be marked by that beast is to be marked by Babylon type of empires, right? But Jews didn't start calling Rome Babylon until after the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70, 80. This is like their 9-11 event. In Israel's history. This is the last and final time the temple was destroyed, and it, it just crushed their hearts and their morale as a nation. Um, and they were under, under Roman rule completely uh, underfoot after that. And so that's that's where scholars would date the book of Revelation, is in the midst of this time period, given the fact that they didn't start calling Rome Babylon until 70 AD. I like maps to know where I am, right? <clears throat> Here. It starts off by mentioning seven churches, and this is modern day Turkey. Um, but here is where the, the churches, the ruins of these churches, are um, in, in Turkey. And so here is all of the, all the churches that John is writing to. And I think that's one of the biggest missed parts of the book of Revelation. Like when you turn to 1 Corinthians, what do you think? Paul is writing a letter to the church of Corinth, right? Well, he's revealing a revelation that was given to him by an angel of God, but he's also a pastor. And he's writing this letter to his seven churches. And I think we missed that part. A big part of this letter is pastoral. He's trying to help them be faithful in the time frame that they are, right? And so here's here's where his churches are, and here's where John is.
2: Oh. All the
1: way over there. <laughs> so John's been exiled to this kind of prison island. It's really tiny, probably with other prisoners as well, but kind of flexibility. He gets to write things, right? <laughs> he gets to experience um, a closeness with God. He's, he's, not, he's in captivity, but it doesn't seem to be one that's immediately threatening his life, right? He's able to send mail back to the mainland (laughs) uh, and and send uh, letters to um, his churches. So this is another really important part of the book of Revelation too. When you're in occupied land, like the Christians were in Rome, right? Rome was controlling this whole region. You're gonna use a lot of metaphorical language that only makes sense to you. Which us in 21st century America, we're not going to be up on all of the political cartoons of first century Rome, right? <laughs> and so, one of the political cartoons, my, my professor would uh, tell me about the book of Revelation, it's like a political cartoon turned up on, on the highest volume possible, right? Here's one of the political cartoons you'll find in the book of Revelation The beast, who is talking about the animals. The crazy animals, Martin. Yeah, the beast that comes out of the ocean has seven heads. And the book of Revelation says that one of the heads is mortally wounded and it looks like it's dead, right? Rome not only controlled the land, but controlled the sea too, right? And guess how many prominent mountains Rome had? Seven, right? So there's seven headed beasts. And what did we learn about beasts? It's Babylon or Rome. It's the empire, right? The beast comes out of the ocean and one of the heads is mortally wounded as if it was, um, as if it was assassinated. Guess what happened to Nero? Assassinated. Guess what the rumor was at the time of John of Patmos? That Nero was going to rise from the dead and take the throne again. There was this whole resurrection myth that Nero was going to rise from the dead. And so John is using that kind of a political, deeply politically motivated metaphor to talk about the the onslaught of the beast coming out of the ocean to regain control and bring hardship for the faithful. And we, again, we would miss that metaphor if we're thinking in futuristic terms, right? John is speaking in highly evocative, political, theological language for his churches in this time frame, right? 666 is another one. Whenever I grew up and if I'd get a receipt with 666 on it, I was like, man, that's it? That, I lived a good life. I'm 15 and I got 666 in McDonald's. That's it. That's the end for me, Right? 666, uh, uh, there's this $5 theological word called geomatra. And what you do with that is what John was doing in the book of Revelation. For every Greek or Hebrew word, there's a number assigned to it, right? So alpha is one, beta is two. When you add 666, or in some manuscripts, it's 668. um, When you add them all together, it spells out This.
3: Domitian. And
1: another manuscript, 666, spells out Emperor Nero. So guess who's going to mark you? Beast. The leader of the beast, right? And of course, I grew up, and even recently during the COVID pandemic, you would hear a lot of rumors or conspiracies about what the mark of the beast was, right? It's gonna be a microchip. That's what I was afraid of growing up. A tattoo during the COVID pandemic, it was a vaccine. That's the mark of the beast. That's how they're gonna get you. Because in the book of Revelation, it says you can't buy or sell without this mark. But what John is saying, so again, where does the beat, where's the mark? On On the wrist and the forehead. And it says in the book of Revelation, you can't buy or sell without these marks on your wrist or forehead. Well, guess where the faithful Jews tied the Psalms in worship? The phylacteries on their forehead and on their wrist. This was a sign of fidelity to God. So what John was saying, when you're marked by the beast, your fidelity is to the sacredness of the empire. Your belief is to the gods of Rome rather than to the the God revealed through Christ Jesus, right? So when you are marked by the beast, and everybody is preoccupied with the mark of the beast, but guess what? There's a mark of the lamb in the book of Revelation too. We ever talk about that? (laughs) You can be marked by your fidelity, your faithfulness to the lamb. And one of the things to really remember about the mark of the beast is that um, there were so many cultic, Um, organizations in Rome that, like, you literally couldn't buy meat that wasn't sacrificed to a false god, right? And if you wanted to participate in the marketplace at all, you had to worship a false god to provide for your family. And so when you're looking at this this map here, people who are further more into the city had more of a problem with this kind of fidelity. Like, do I choose worship of a false God or feed my family? Do I choose career advancement or worshiping Christ alone? And as we, we'll read on, we're each each table is gonna read just a the short letter to each church, and then we're gonna come back and talk about it for a little bit. But you're gonna see how John praises the faithfulness of some and condemns kind of the lack of faithfulness in others, <laughs> Laodicea, right there. Um, But see how further inland they are into the metropolis of Rome, further into the city center. It's harder and harder to maintain fidelity when cultic and pagan worship is so central to Rome. Um, They had idols for their false gods all over the empire, and you literally could not participate in commerce without showing reverence or fidelity to these false gods. So that's really what John is talking about. You can't buy or sell without this fidelity to the beast, right? Um, And I, I could spend, we will spend more time on this, but one more thing I'll say about the commerce is when you participate in an economy of an empire, and the phrase for Rome at the time was Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome, And guess how Rome exercised that peace? Squash anybody and anything that stood in Rome's way, right? So the peace of Rome looked like this across the whole empire with their swords, right? Crucifixion was a really strong tool of just suppressing any kind of rebellion. And that's what Christ was killed by, right? the crucifixion of Rome to suppress any Jewish rebellion, any, any rebellion in the city, they would use force and violence to maintain their power and authority. And so this is what John is talking about, about the ways of the beast. Beast-like nations, beast-like empires use violence, power, and authority by force and death to maintain their power. And John contrasts that to the kingdom of the slaughtered lamb, right? When you're marked by the lamb, you are marked by humility, love, peace, joy, justice, the, the contrast of the ways of the beast, right? You are marked by the ways of the lamb. Okay, everybody still with me? Okay, are you enjoying it so far? Okay, I, I get a, a lot out of the book of Revelation and I hope, I hope you guys do too. Uh, I just want to see what the, oh, I guess that's the end, isn't it? I reached the end of the slideshow. So um, what what I want to do now is there's still this question of what's the purpose of the book of Revelation? And John, and I think this is missed a lot because we try to dive into the middle of it rather than just start from the beginning. Um, And I just want to read the first part. John actually tells us how to read this book right at the beginning. Um, and I just want to read with you, if you want to follow along with me, I'm just going to read Revelation chapter 1. Best place to start is the beginning. Revelation chapter 1, 1 through um, 11. I'm going to be reading it from the NIV translation. You might have a different one you prefer. Um, but this is, this is how John starts this, this, this book. The revelation from who? Yeah, Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of who? Jesus Christ, right? So we're asking this question, what is being revealed? We're already getting some answers, right? It's from Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ, to those who are following Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, before I read the end here, let's clear up. um, What do you think when you hear the word prophecy? Foretelling, okay? Anybody else have an idea of prophecy? So, Uh, prophecy in scripture, Paul talks about it a lot in his letters to the epistle. Um, Prophecy is wisdom at its fundamental core. Uh, And the majority of prophecy in the Bible, like from the prophets, they have, there's a lot of doom and gloom in some of the prophets, right? Like Amos, Hobadiah, you're not going to go there again for like Psalm type readings. They all say Amos, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, they're like, if you don't stop doing this, this is gonna happen, right? So they're trying to bestow wisdom on the people. Like God gave us this law for a reason, like don't kill each other, pretty good law. If you don't stop doing that, you're gonna reap these consequences, right? And we see Amos, Obadiah, Hosea, they all go before Israel and give them their prophetic word. But there's always this way, if you repent, this horrible thing isn't gonna happen, right? If you come back to God, if you come back to these precepts, then this horrible, you can avoid this, this future event. And so when we hear the word prophecy, it's that wisdom that is God calling people back to faithfulness. That, and so keep that in mind as you're reading some of the terrible parts of Revelation. A lot of that for John's Revelation is, if you don't repent, this is gonna be the outcome for you. And, and, and the community. Let's, let's read on. Greetings and doxology. Does your Bible say that at the very next above verse four? John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit and from the seven before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you get resurrection metaphor there, right? The firstborn from the dead. He is the first one who has risen from the dead, and that's the hope that we have. So again, starting with hope, we have this hope in resurrection, And that is this greeting that John is giving the churches. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, and a priests to serve his God and father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him, so those who crucified him, They will see him too, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Just a few more verses. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it tells us why he was there. He was testifying and witnessing to Christ. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, right on a scroll, I hope he had his coffee that morning, that would have scared me to death. Write on this scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smarna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So again, what is John supposed to do in this vision? An important question to ask about a letter is who is it written for? And you just heard the answer. Who is this written to? The seven churches, right? And so everything we read in this revelation is primarily for Ben Kramer in Idaho. No, it's primarily for the seven churches in Asia Minor at the time. And so when we hear these metaphors, we first, this is probably one of the best pieces of advice I was given about the Bible Whenever you hear a word written to a certain people in a certain ancient historical context, your first question is then, how does it apply to them first? Then we can take that fruit and see how it applies to our lives too, right? Otherwise, you're going to start reading dragons and stuff as if it's going to happen to you right now, right? And that doesn't bring hope. That brings a lot of foreboding. And you're by yourself in the morning with your coffee and terrified. So we don't want that to happen. So real quick, it's 6.53, so we won't spend a ton of time on this, but I really want to finish um, breaking out in tables, and I'd love for each of you to read the short message to each of the churches um, as we conclude tonight. So uh, this table, would you read the message to the church in Ephesus? That's Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And we're going to give the troublemaker table, the troublemaker church, (laughs) <laughs> would you read the message to Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14 through 22? Um, and Sue's table, would you read uh, the message to the church in Smyrna, which is Revelation 2, 8 through 11? And uh, Katrina's table, would you read the message to the church in Pergamum, which is Revelation 2, 12 through 17? Uh, Linda's table, would you read the message to the church in Thyatira, which is Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Um, And this table, read the message to the church in Sardis, which is Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And those of you online, would you read the message to the church in Philadelphia? I know that we can't break you out into a group together, but if you'd all just read that on your own, it's Revelation chapter 3 seven through 13. And I'd love to hear any thoughts you might have. So just take a few minutes, read that together as a table. We'll come back. Pick one representative from your table to give us just the general sense that you got from reading this message. All right. We're going to come back together just so we can get you guys out at a decent time this evening. And I wanna I want to mention something and then when we get to your table, I want to hear two things. What do, you feel like, what do you feel like John is saying to these churches? He, does he point out something good? Does he point out something bad? And what is he calling them to do? And so if, if one of you from the table wants the microphone and be able to share that, um, what is, does, does he mention something bad? Does he mention something good? And what is he calling them to do in the midst of that? Uh, as you read, did, did you all notice how he used the lampstand language? right? I'm going to remove your lampstand or, but he all started, we just started at the beginning of this in the throne room with Jesus Christ and the seven were before him. So there's that number seven again, right? And how many churches are we talking to? Right? So seven in scripture is really significant. It's the number of completion. What day did God rest? Right, so that's when the work is finished and rest can come. And we are waiting to to receive the benefits of that rest and to be one with with Christ. Um, What number would you say, if you had to pick a number between one and seven that was incomplete, what number would that be? Six, good job. What made you think of six? So it's almost yeah, there you go. So it's incomplete. The sixth day, you're not there to rest, Right guess what day humanity was created on? <laughs> almost there, right? You're almost there, but we need God to inhabit that rest, right? And so whenever you see a number in triplicate in, in mathematics, that number is repeated into infinity, right? And so when we encounter again, this number 666, it's as if we're trapped on that sixth day into infinity, but the lamb is calling us to be marked by seven, to be in that rest, and to be marked by seven, 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 into eternity, right? To be in that day of rest with God and all of creation, and that's how revelation ends. All of God is in all of creation, and everyone, there's no death, there's no tears, there's no sorrow, there's no hunger, there's no thirst, and all of creation is with all of God, and Christ is on the throne. And we're all singing that hymn that we started out class with, right? Holy, holy, holy. Because <laughs> I'd sing holy, holy, holy too when, when God does that. So um, as John is speaking to these seven churches, um, guess what the Greek word for uh, messenger is? Angel. So when he starts off the church, to the angel of the church, he's talking to, their, to the male boy, right? But where does our minds go to? Angel with wings, right? <laughs> Angeloi is the Greek word for messenger. So we in, in English is a is a funny thing because we'll encounter angels like the two angels in Sodom and Gomorrah are two messengers of God, right? So that's kind of interchangeable in scripture. But my mind jumps immediately to the winged beings, right? But the angel of the Church of Smarna, for example, that's the messenger, the male reader uh, for the church that would be appointed there. Okay, so Ephesus. Let me give you the microphone. Uh, good things, bad things, and what did he say Pastor to do?
4: Ben and the rest of the students here today, we'll talk about the church at Ephesus. We had some good things to say about Ephesus. They were very hard workers. Mm. But it did have some issues with false prophets or false apostles oh. that they had turned from and had lost their initial love that they had from getting that first message. And they were encouraged to get back and go back the way they were in the beginning. Hold the faith. Hold the faith. Yeah. Be following these folks. And it was really nice to see that there were some other folks that uh, he hated as well. (laughs) I like that. He got to portray a little bit of hate for the Nickeloshans, I think. Yes, the The Nickeloshans. Nickeloshans, he also hated them. It was a word of encouragement Mm -hmm. because of the hard work and all of that, that they've suffered a lot, but it was time to, stop following the false yeah. prophets and let's get busy back to the word that I brought you first. Right. The good news.
1: Absolutely. That's, that's good. And it gives you this kind of picture of the characteristics of the church, right? There's this alternative cult that was Nicolaitans, they worshiped, um, gosh, we can get into that theology later, but they were, they were just a cult that worshiped all these other gods. They were trying to pull them away from, you don't need to follow Christ. You need to follow our our religion. So it gives you that characteristic. Um, I gave you which church? Laodicea. You want to tell us what was good, what was bad? Typical Laodicea. <laughs> you, want, you want Sue's table to go and then we'll decide? <laughs> okay, they're, not, they're undecided. <laughs> oh, well, who's, re- who's ready? Who'd, who'd like to share? All right. Tell us which church you're talking about. What was good what was bad and what, it, what they were encouraged to do
2: we had pergamum okay um and so they're living with satan among them Ooh. or where satan lives but it sounds like that was more like in the city or the town
3: yeah
2: so they were being praised for holding fast to john's name and not denying him and there was another like kind of witness who had come before them, but who had died. Mm -hmm. Um, but some of them were following false prophets who would lead them to like eat food sacrificed to idols. And like, I think kind of what you were talking about earlier with the commerce. Yeah. Um, So they were encouraged to repent and turn from them. And then there was something we didn't understand with a white stone that they would get
4: white
1: stone. Where, which verse was that?
2: Mm-hmm. 17
1: whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who is victorious i will give some of the hidden manna is that where yours says white stone
2: Well, then that keeps going
1: oh i will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it you would have to ask the one who received it to know what the white stone was <laughs> anyone have a white stone in here no i don't know it's known only to the one who receives it so as a pastor i have to tell you that's mystery we just got to let mystery be right there well i'll look into that though that's an interesting i hadn't noticed that particular part of the verse before um pergamum picture this their church was literally under the shadow of a giant throne erected to zeus So when they talk about the throne of Satan, that's what John is talking about. They literally worship, live, and operate under the shadow of the throne of Zeus. So he's very um, topographical. So he uses elements in the surrounding geography to to really get his point across. Is this table ready? I'll give the mic to the, the one. Yeah. Which church were you? We had the Church of in Sardis, okay,
5: um, and uh, there was some good news and some bad news in this church. Um, There's a reputation for being alive, uh, but unfortunately, uh, it seems like they're not living up to that, and they they have some dead element uh, to their church. Hmm. Uh, But the message is a wake up call, um, uh, calling for uh, for the church to remember. Uh, the message that they've received and heard to hold it fast and repent mm. um, and some consequences too uh, if uh, if they choose not to uh, to wake up and, uh, and take things seriously um, uh, he'll come like a thief and they don't know what time he'll come mm. um, there was also some stuff about soil clothes some people seem like they're doing a good job uh living alive in the church and some people aren't um, so that may have been some of what uh, what he's uh he's addressing there
1: great thank you so much now you see this imagery of white robes that's that's a common imagery all throughout the book of revelation and what would you think the color of white represents in in the bible purity holiness right this would unfortunately be a common trope in white supremacy that they would Emphasize that. See, whiteness is purity. Even the Bible says so. So it's important to distinguish that apart from those damaging narratives. Um, that the, the 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 whiteness is to represent. You would think an unblemished lamb, right? That was uh, slaughtered on our behalf. That was the sacrificial lamb. And so we're thinking of that whiteness. Um, as this salvation from from Christ, right? That we are dressed in His righteousness. So that's really what what John is getting at. Linda, is your table ready? All right. Name your church and what they did great and wrong. And <laughs>
2: uh, the church is Thyatira. Thyatira. Okay. Uh, what we came from it is is. Uh... He's telling that church to uh, quit following Jezebel and you know, oh. all the sexual desires and, and, and uh, her teachings and the miss taking him basically away from Jesus and, and, and doing Satan's ways. You basically choose. Do you want to uh, take the side of Satan or the side of Jesus and, mm. and to repent? And Those that have, have been following Jesus basically stay there with and follow that path because you're going to, you're doing okay. And in the end, uh, they will be the ones that will rule uh, and overcome everything.
1: Wow. That's a pretty good message. All right. Last table. Did I get everybody except for this one? Oh.
2: I'll just say, I guess I'm interpreting from my own
1: point. For sure. Yeah.
2: Um, My mother was a very... Christian and a teacher, and she always told me that this book is mostly about Rome and the churches, from Smyrna, mm-hmm. and the other churches were fighting the conflict between worship of the emperor and right. God right. and all of that. Uh, while the Christians were trying, and John was trying to maintain Christian churches going forward. Mm-hmm. And so, in this, he's encouraging the church at Smyrna to stay faithful to the church of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. and they would come to life again if they're persecuted and die, they'll come to life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it's saying.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: It's like the last sentence is a question for every table What does it mean by the second death?
1: Well, the second death, so. This has spurred on a lot of theological debate um, because over the series, and we might touch on this later on in class, but um, there's, there's a theological tradition that thinks in eternity for both heaven and hell. But ancient Christians believed that there is nothing eternal but God and those who are with God, right? Even Paul says the wages of sin is what? death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So in their mindset, Jesus is going to return, and all the dead will be raised. Everybody, righteous, unrighteous, just like it says in scripture, right? All will be raised, and then the great judgment will happen, right? And those who still, that's another opportunity for them to receive and follow Christ, is at that return when all are raised. But even then, there will still be those who say, nope, fine, you gave me resurrection. That's great. That's all I want from you. I don't want to continue even in eternity with you. And in the book of Revelation, they say that they live outside the city gates. But guess what? The gates are open. There's always this desire for God's grace to receive and have people come. Even after the judgment, and I'm getting ahead of myself. I know I'm a pastor. I always do this. I'm preaching. I'm sorry. Even after the judgment, in the final book of the book of Revelation, the tree of life is there for the healing of the nations. It says that, even after the judgment, even after everything, the tree of life; its leaves are there for the healing of the nations. God's desire is for reconciliation, healing, and redemption. So there's this train of thought. Then that, um, have you heard of the theology of annihilation? So like those who, those who reject God at the very end, even after the resurrection. God is a loving God and would not, and this is more of my conviction, just to be honest. God is such a loving God. God's not going to put someone in a underground subterranean torture chamber for the rest of eternity. They will simply not be. Satan, demons, all of those things are thrown into The lake of fire. And I think this is what you were talking about. The lake of fire is God's holy love. We heard this refining fire. uh, We'll hear this in Laodicea. There's this refining fire that brings about gold, good things in the world. And this is God's holy love in the world. And so, at the end of all things, the second death are those who would rather be refined by that in the lake of fire than continue on in eternity with Christ. So that's what the second death is, is talking about. All right, last church. All right, save the best for last.
3: <laughs> All right, well, our take, I believe, it's not yours, that this church was lukewarm. It was neither hot nor cold, which mm-hmm. actually upset him so much. He said, I'm about ready to spit you out of the mouth, which means they're going to lose their denominational. <laughs> They can no they're, longer be Methodists no yeah. Methodist. right um, but actually this was a, a pretty a selfish church and I don't think they could see anything that was going on because mm-hmm. one of the things he talks about is their nakedness um, let's see what else was in there that I was trying to remember that they're wretched. Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Mm. They just, they, but I don't. But they couldn't see it themselves. They didn't. They couldn't look inward to see that. And so, one of the things down here somewhere else, I think he basically. It's like we're just going to reset you and start you over.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good, accurate reading. Laodicea really is the uh, most rebellious church in all the letters saved them for last to talk to them in the letter. But you see where Laodicea is. You can't really see it because you can't see like water movements on this map very well. But Laodicea, again, is further, one of the furthest churches in the metropolis area. So it's one of the wealthiest. And what you'll learn when you get further into the context of Laodicea is that they had a hot spring coming down from the mountain, but it would hit this cool pool of this other stream that was going on in the middle of the town in Laodicea so again he used the metaphor of the topography hot springs coming down hitting cool water creates this kind of tepid lukewarm water now that phrase is often said in a way of saying you should either be hot or cold right as if hot is on fire for God but cold is kind of you're frozen and away from God. Has anybody heard it put that way before? That's kind of how I grew up thinking that, but really how John is meaning it is that hot has really useful properties for like medicinal healing comfort and cool water has really good properties too. it. Refreshes you when you drink it, you uses it for washing both hot and cold have really deep good purposes So it's even a worse critique because it's like, you are purposeless. You have no purpose in regard to the kingdom because you can't see. You're not able to see. And why? Because they're one of the wealthiest churches that that John is talking to. They can't see it because they have no need, and they're probably engaging in a lot of the commerce to be wealthy. So they, they really can't see their need for these things because all their needs are met and they don't really have a desire to continue to go. So they end up into this kind of apathetic life. And so that's why John kind of hits home really hard <laughs> with, with Laodicea because like you need to get out of your apathy, start giving these things away to the poor. You're, you're blind, deaf, and naked, but you can't see it because you're really blinded by your privilege and, and, your, and your wealth. So I think that's a, that's a good place to end for this evening. Um, I'm really excited for the rest of this, this class. We're going to continue to ask this one question. What does the book reveal? God and Jesus Christ. Any final questions before I dismiss you tonight, Katrina? Yes, the lake of fire. Yes. Yes. So the the fire all throughout the Bible is this metaphor for God's refining love. You even if you read it, the to the letter in Laodicea, even talks about the refining fire that brings about gold, right? And that's all throughout the Old Testament, it's all throughout the New Testament, that God's holy love. Um, Paul even uses it as when you are kind to someone, you heap what on their heads burning coals, right? It's not to say like, I'm going to be kind to you so that you're, you hurt, right? That's not what Paul's saying. He's this, this, this holy love of God is going to be on their heads and it's going to drive them to kindness too, right? And so at the very end of all things, we have this vision of this grand lake of fire. And what really got me was hell is thrown into this lake of fire. Satan, all the demons, all the unfaithful, those who finally rejected Christ. And it didn't make sense to me. It finally clicked in the back room in seminary, this musty old room that I would do my, I was like, why would God throw hell into itself? Right? It doesn't make any sense. But then when you realize that the holy love of God is the final, has the final word over creation. God's holy love does, not death and destruction. God's holy love has the final word over creation. And in Revelation, I think it's chapter 21, hell, Satan, death, demons, all of evil, all of what destroys creation is thrown into the lake of fire. And we're supposed to envision that it's God's holy, eternal love because it's an eternal lake of fire. It's one that burns. And what is the only thing that's eternal? God. God right? That is an ancient Christian conviction. The only thing that's eternal is from God. That's why we can only have eternal life from God. And who reveals God? You guys have got the book of Revelation. Boom. One class, and you're all these students. So does that help clarify things? Okay. Sue, don't. There's no stupid questions. It is not. There's like a million Johns in the Bible, right? Right? But it's not, it's, they're, they're separate by, I, I would say, a generation. Because um, John was old when the gospel was written. So this is a different, different John. And sometimes John would be a, a pseudonym that they would write under because of the, John the gospel writer. So it can get kind of confusing when it comes to authorship. But this is, this is a different, different John. So not a stupid question. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. I would love any feedback that would make this more enjoyable, even if it's the tone of my voice or how loud I talk. But thank you all so much for being here tonight. I really hope you
4: enjoyed yourselves.
0: so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.